Well, welcome. Welcome to Redemption Parker. My name is Mark. If you're new here, welcome. We're so glad you're visiting with us this morning. Um, we are in this series through the book of Matthew called The King and the Kingdom. And we're just trying to wrap our lives around this to, to kind of detach ourselves from the, the kings and the kingdoms of this world and come in and be part of the king and the, king, the kingdom of that world. So as I was looking at the Sermon on the Mount, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Most scholars will say this is uh, Jesus' manifesto. This is his ultimate teaching of what life is meant to look like, what flourishing is meant to look like. This is Jesus establishing what we'll call today kingdom culture. Now, I was thinking about culture this week. Culture is everywhere. Like every, every, even if you don't think about it, even if you're not intentional about it, like you, you are breathing in and breathing out a culture that is shaping your values, your systems, what you, you pursue, what you cherish. And so different cities have different cultures. So Parker's different than Denver. Portland's different than New York City. Uh, every family has a culture. Like there's a culture in your home that, that uh, certain things are celebrated, certain things are looked down upon, certain things are, are, are cherished. There's certain ethics in your family that, that are different from the families next to you. Uh, culture is everywhere. Teams have culture. Uh, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about a, a culture of winning and, and each uh, fan base has uh, different cultures there as well. I was thinking about that this week. Since I was a little kid, I have been obsessed with the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, a dream of mine came true. We, we got to drive through the night. Uh, I always wanted to go to a Lakers home playoff game. So, so we drove to Los Angeles as we're driving there. I'm just getting more and more excited. I've got my Laker gear on and Jennifer's got it on because she's kind of adopted it with me uh, just to support me in this. And uh, so we're driving and, and we're parking. And even as I park, I'm like, wow, these are my people. <laughs> and we get out and I don't know these people. I'm high five and people from every race and we're, we're hugging each other. And, and Jennifer just kept looking at me. She's just like, these are your people. And I'm like, yeah, this is my family. And so we're, we're walking around and, and we, get, we, we walk around the Staples Center and we look at the, at the time, the, the 14 championship banners. There would be two more to be added uh, shortly after this. And, and uh, we, we go find our seats and we're in the very, very, very last row. We're like touch the ceiling of the Staples center, but it didn't matter because there was a culture there and, and we didn't have to be told what to celebrate. Like we, we were all in. And so when, when we celebrated, we celebrated together and, and we're hugging each other and high-fiving each other, cheering on Kobe. And so the, this week there's, it, you know, that's our culture. That's our, that's our, our, our fan family. And so there, it's been a difficult week. I'm representing Lakers with my socks on today. But it was a culture. Uh, and, and, and as you go into different cultures, you, you, one, one of the things you see is when you step out of your culture and go into a different culture, whether you have a meal in someone else's house or you go to a different city or go to a different country, you not only see that culture with new eyes, you see uh, your old culture with new eyes. And so, uh, for example, 2013, we moved from ministering to American military personnel in Okinawa, Japan, to the Czech Republic. And uh, we were going to try to reach Czechs. And so with all missionaries, what we do is we we spend the first couple years learning the language and culture. What does this culture value? 
What are barriers to the gospel? What, what are ethics that are different? What, what, what's the language? And so you just kind of immerse yourself in that. And as you immerse yourself in that, you're not only learning that, you're, you're learning yourself. Like I, I learned uh, things that I appreciate more about America and other things that I'm like, wow, well, yeah, that's, that, that's not true everywhere else in the world. Some, some things are, are just interesting little cultural things like, uh, you know, universally around the world, Americans are seen as overly optimistic and happy. Did you notice? Did you know that? Like my Czech friends would give me a hard time. They're like, Mark, why do you smile all the time? And why do you talk with your mouth so wide open all the time? That's an American thing, by the way. They have very tight, like a very tight culture. You know, we say it's just expected. If you, uh, if, if you were coming here, even though you may have had a terrible week, you know, it's just kind of expected. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How are you? Like, you know, it, sometimes we, we can tell that's not quite, so we press a little bit more. But that's our response. How are you doing? I'm good. And to my Czech friends, they're like, that's disingenuous. That, that, that's not right. We're an optimistic culture. Czechs are a pessimistic culture. So, seriously, if you ask a Czech, jak se mash, meaning, how are you? One response that you might hear quite frequently is, jasem špatný jako ti. I'm bad like you. <laughs> seriously. Oh I'm, ba- oh, I'm doing bad, but so are you. So we're in this together. Like, their, their culture, like, we, we prize individualism, Right? And success, like, no, that's, we're an individualistic culture, they're a communal culture. So they're, they're like folk hero is a guy named Cimarron, and in all the stories, Cimarron comes in second place, never first. Because you don't want to stick out, you don't want to be last, you don't want to be first. We're Americans, if you're not first, you're last. Like, that's just a difference in our culture, right? Uh, and our kids, they, they had to learn the language and culture, and so we, we sent them to school. Now, they came from uh, growing up, being born in Japan, uh, growing up with the American military, Okinawa, and then we're like, hey, we're actually not going to homeschool you here. We're sending you to the Czech public school, and so good luck with that. And so we, we sent them, and uh, we see all your Facebook posts back in America, first day of school with the cute little backpacks and all that. And so we, we go. We don't speak the language. They don't speak the language. We're just going to school and they get, bring all the kids out first day of school out in the, the, the town like courtyard. And uh, then they roll out a World War I cannon. Set that thing off. Boom. I mean, that's how you start sissies back in America. Like you, you, you start with a cannon and that, that'll instill some fear in your kids. And so they went off to school, and Hannah, poor Hannah, she wasn't even in elementary school at that point. She was in preschool, matur- what they call mother school, maturska school, right? Was that what you were in? Okay, she doesn't even know because she hated it. <laughs> she hated that part. She's like, I don't speak their language. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. And so uh, we found pretty, pretty early on that I had to be the one that would take her to school and drop her off because she would just be too clingy and cry with her mother in, in those moments. So I would take her, but... But sometimes you show up and you are, you are not prepared. Like they have a day in the calendar. Like you, you, you just have certain clothes on on this day. Americans were like, you wear whatever clothes you have, you go. No, like you get shamed if you don't have the right clothes on the right day. Well, one day we show up and all the boys and girls are dressed up as witches and wizards. This is April, mind you. So this is not uh, Halloween. They don't do that. 
And here we got Hannah over here, and we got all these witches, and Hannah's got a little look of judgment on her, in her there. She's like, what is going on here? Why, why are all these... I don't know what the kid in the background's doing, but the other kids are dressed up as wizards and witches. Like, what is going on? So I go back home. I have my language teacher come, and I'm like, hey, her name's Radka. I was like, Radka, why, why, why were all the kids dressed up as wizards and witches today? And she laughs, and she's like, oh... That's because it's Burning Witches Day. <laughs> like, what? Burning Witch? What? Yeah, this is the day where we mark the burning of the witches and the wizards. This is not Hogwarts, apparently, because that's what they're doing. But they apparently dress up like that. And then Hannah comes home and say, Hannah, so what'd you do? And she's like, well, we took some wood and some... some, uh, some uh, straw and we made witches and then uh, we went on to the schoolyard and the teachers built a bonfire and we threw our witches on the bonfire. <laughs> preschool. This is preschool. <laughs> now I, I say all that because it's, it's, it took a, quite a, it's quite a cultural shift, right? It's a radical reorientation. To like, oh, okay, so this is what we do. This is what we celebrate. This is what what we, what we cherish as a culture. Now, if you can begin to understand some of that, like in family, in countries, and cultures, just the differences there, and, and what it takes to kind of realign yourself, then you can just barely get a hint of what Jesus is getting at when he's establishing a kingdom culture. It is unlike anything the world has ever seen. The kingdom of heaven is not the American dream kind of with a little Christianity sprinkled in. Kingdom of heaven is not the Czech dream. It's not the Chinese dream. It's not the Laker dream. It's not any of those. The kingdom of heaven is radically different with radically different values, radically different pursuits. And, and Jesus is gathered his disciples. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 1, it, it says that he gathered his disciples. And he's going to teach them. He's going to establish what the kingdom of heaven culture should look like. What it is he wants his disciples to look like in the world. And by the way, the kingdom of heaven is not a place we will one day go to, but Jesus brought up there, down here. And it isn't un, it's, it's unlike any other kingdom. It doesn't have boundaries and walls and borders and, and people, but, but, but it is permeating across the whole cosmos, and the kingdom is, is, is growing in that way. So it's a little subversive. It's an upside-down kingdom. But, but you need to understand that because sometimes we think of Christianity as, well, if I pray the prayer and I made a commitment, then one day I'll go to the kingdom of heaven. As if it's a, a place we're going to go to. That's not how Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. No, the kingdom of heaven becoming an increasing reality, not only in our lives, but in our world here and now. So that the good news of the gospel of the kingdom is not just good news when you die, to be sure when you die you get the presence of Jesus, and to be sure when Jesus comes back he will once and for, for all finally establish the kingdom fully on earth. But right now the good news is the kingdom of heaven is here. And we are living in it. And as disciples, that's our citizenship. So Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves. It's a radical, different world that you live in when you come to be a citizen of this kingdom. 
Oh, oh, we still eat the same food. We drive the same cars. We live in the same houses. But there's a different value. There's a different pursuit. There's a different way to live that is radically different culture. And the Sermon on the Mount is that, establishing what does this culture look like. As God's kingdom citizens, what should we look like, pursue, act, do all those things? That's the Sermon on the Mount in the nutshell. In fact, I, I want to just look at the Sermon on the Mount this week. We'll be several weeks in it, but uh, this week just from a 30,000 foot view at first. Because I think one of the problems with the Sermon on the Mount is we can too easily get into the weeds and miss the forest for the trees. We can start to say, well, well, this is what he says about divorce and this is what he says about anger and just kind of nail down on that but miss the overall point of the kind of people Jesus is creating. And so I want to do a, an overview and then I want to show you that the Beatitudes that were read to us are, are not just an addition at the beginning or some, some strange preamble, but they are the anchor for us that we need to keep in mind in every uh, paragraph through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is chapters Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters. I would encourage you to read and reread and reread that over the next several weeks. In fact, I would encourage you to memorize it. About 20 years ago, uh, I remember we were in church. I was in seminary, and uh, my pastor at the time uh, encouraged us to memorize it. And he made a, an offer to the congregation that I want to make you. If you memorize the Sermon on the Mount, we will buy you lunch. Just come to me. We'll go out after Sunday. We'll buy you lunch. Jennifer actually did at that time. I was in seminary. I was like, I'm not memorizing anything else. But she did. I mean, it'll be worth your time. It's not that difficult. Three chapters is not that difficult. You can do this and let it kind of reach into that deep part of your soul in that way. So I'd encourage that. The Sermon on the Mount, again, is Jesus' manifesto. This is what righteousness looks like. This is what the kingdom of heaven, this is what God's kingdom people should look like and and do on earth. So let's just see what that is. Just a a, a summary. First of all, he says you are to be salt and light. This is that that, that God's kingdom people are to be this kind of uh, positive force in the world. In in the sense that salt was a, a preservative against decay. So God's kingdom people, when they see brokenness, they don't run from that and, and move to the suburbs necessarily. They, they see brokenness and they go into it. They, they, uh, for example, the first three centuries, the plagues across the Roman Empire, it was the Christians that moved in and, and cared for and gave their lives and loved people and that transformed the world. Christians are the ones that build the hospitals and the schools and the wells. Like, that, like that's what God's kingdom people cherish because they are salt and light. But then he'll say God's people have a relationship to God. And it's one of righteousness. In fact, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now that is not necessarily good news. Not the way they would have heard it. No one was more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. How is that even possible, Jesus? Well, we'll get back to that. He'll talk about our relationship with one another. He'll say, for example, in verse 21, you have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He'll talk about, it's not just the fruit of the behavior, murder. It's the root. It's the seed. 
If the fruit is bad, the seed is bad. So, so he said, it's not just enough that you don't murder. You, you don't have anger in your heart. That's how God's kingdom people are. And then he goes on from there. Uh, kind of the, the integrity with one another. He says, you, you've heard that he said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who lusts has committed adultery in his heart. Again, he's dealing not with just the fruit, but the the root. He says God's kingdom people are not like that. And maybe already you're starting to feel like, well, I don't know if I like this sermon. (laughs) Well, we'll get back to that as well. He'll talk about integrity in relationship. He says you don't give yourself away physically to someone that you're not willing to give yourself away wholly with your whole life in, in marriage. And he'll talk about divorce. He'll talk about how we talk about to one another. Let your yes be yes. Be people of integrity in your speech. And let your no be no. He'll talk about what do you do when people oppose you? What do you do with your enemies? What do you do when when someone is trying to tear you down? What does the kingdom culture look like? And it's radically different than any other culture the world has ever seen. He says you love them. Like, well, how is that possible? He'll go on. He'll talk about our, our, our posture towards the poor. He says it's not one of dominating or, or, or looking down. He's saying, no, these are fellow image bearers of God. And so you, with your money and your life and your service and your opportunity, as you have opportunity that's given to you, you pour into them because they're image bearers and co-heirs with Christ. And so we serve our city. We, we, we partner with the Joshua Station, not because we're better than the people transitioning out of homelessness, but because they bear the image of God and God's people care about that. I talk about how we are to relate to God in our, our own religion in terms of prayer and fasting with, with a deep sense of humility and longing for God. I talk about how we are to relate to our treasure, our, our finances. And, and how they are worked into our heart. And, he, and he'll say, don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth, but lay it up for yourself in heaven. We'll talk about what we do with anxiety and worry and fear and how, how God is inviting to bring all that to him. We'll talk about how, uh, how we relate with one another that when someone has done wrong and, and has fallen short, what is judgment and what is not judgment and how we're to relate. Meaning we're not to judge people in a way that we're better than you, but we're to, in love, go to our brothers and sisters, first checking ourselves, is this something that's also true in me, but then saying, because I love you, I see this and I want you to uh, grow into all that God has for you. So we, how we engage one another in that. We talk about uh, how we are to relate to Jesus, the King. How kingdom citizens relate to the king and, and how Jesus is actually quite, well, he's quite firm. He's quite dogmatic about that. That, that. that there are going to be a lot of religious people, a lot of people that even use Jesus for their religion that in the end have no place in the kingdom. You know, in the, in the 19th and 20th century, liberalism that swept across Christianity uh, had this movement that said, hey, you don't have to believe all the miracles. You don't have to believe in the virgin birth and the death, burial, and resurrection. That, you don't need that to be a Christian. And what they would point to is say, they would point to the Sermon on the Mount. They said, if we just lived the Sermon on the Mount, then you would fulfill what it means to be a Christian. 
Except you have to wonder, did they really read it? Because the Sermon on the Mount is no joke. The first thing that should strike you when you read it this week, or even as we've done an overview, if you're honest, is, Lord, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Who can live like that? I can't. I have lusted in my heart. I mean, I'm an adulterer. I have been angry. I'm a murderer. I I have, uh, in, in a thousand different ways, on every verse, I have fallen short. So we should not sentimentalize the Sermon on the Mount. It is a picture of righteousness. It is a picture that Jesus says, you are called to this. You know, uh, Virginia Stem Owen, she was a professor in the 80s in a, in a college in Texas, of all places. But she, um, she assigned her students to write an essay on the Sermon on the Mount. And she said what was refreshing was, there, even in the 80s, there was enough cultural distance from just cultural Christianity that, that these students read it with fresh eyes. And she was shocked by their responses. Here's just a couple of them. You can look it up. The article, the whole article is good, but she's, one, one student said, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman lustfully is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. And they don't even know enough that you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. <laughs> so Virginia Simone, she says, I find it strangely heartening that the Sermon on the Mount remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. So our first response when we hear this should be, I can't, I can't take that, Jesus. Save me from the Sermon on the Mount. It it exposes me. It's a mirror to my soul. And when I look in the mirror, I don't like what it says. I have fallen short. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And we realize before we can do the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be a certain kind of person. We have to be what the Bible calls converted. We need a new spirit in us. And that's where we are pointed to the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are a declaration of what God has first done in us as followers of Christ. The Beatitudes are not a list of certain kind of individuals. Like this is not a Christian Enneagram spirituality like personality test. Well, I'm a peacemaker and over there they're, they're poor in spirit. No, the Beatitudes describe anyone who is a member of the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at those here together. So he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so Jesus is talking about, he's not talking about physical poverty, material poverty. He, he talks about that a lot in other places, but more fundamentally, this is what it means to be a Christian. To understand that before the holiness of God, you bring nothing There is a spiritual bankruptcy. Now, you can only realize that if you're a Christian or if God is leading you to be a Christian. Because every other system in the world, every other religion in the world, and every other person in the world basically comes to God like this. Well, I know I've fallen short. 
There are things that I've done that I shouldn't have done. And I need forgiveness for that. But I've also done some good things. I've been a good husband. I've been a good worker. I've been pretty moral, ethical. I haven't killed anybody. Like, so, so there's this kind of negotiation that goes on that says, yes, I need forgiveness. But I also have some things to offer. I've got some credit to my account. But only a Christian can realize, no. I am spiritually bankrupt. Even those good things that I would point to in my sinful heart were done out of wrong or impure motives, as Isaiah would say. They are filthy rags. There has to be a spiritual poverty, a bankruptcy. But Jesus says, ironically, in this upside-down kingdom, that if you have bankruptcy, you are blessed that, that, that's an amazing statement, an unheard of statement. But he goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, mourning isn't, isn't anywhere else in the Bible or the world associated with blessedness. But what is Jesus talking about? He's, he's getting to the core of it. As you look at the mirror of the Sermon on the Mount and you see, I have fallen short. If in your spirit that, that's, that, that hurts you, if you realize, man, I, I want to live out the Sermon on the Mount. After all, we already know it. We already expect everyone else in our world to live like that for us, but we just know we can't do it. If that pricks your spirit, know that that was a gift from the Spirit. And so we mourn, and that's a picture of repentance. Blessed are those who see their sin, mourn over their sin, turn from their sin. You're blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is, again, a picture of uh, of humility, uh, of those that maybe have some power and ability, but don't use it for themselves, but uh, give it to others. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this is just a picture, a desperation for God. If you have any desperation for God, know that God put that there. First, you are blessed. Hunger, thirst for righteousness. So this is a little bit different than the way that the Apostle Paul uses the word. Paul uses it in a legal sense. You are right before God by Jesus' blood. But, but Matthew is pointing to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness is a picture of living out the Sermon on the Mount, uh, of righteous living. He says you're blessed if you have a desire in you, a hunger and a thirst, if you're, you're desperate for that. People that are desperately hungry and thirsty, it, 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 it causes them to move towards them. You, you don't plant a seed because you're hungry. You, you ask for help. You say, I, I need, can you give me some food? Can you give me some water? Jesus says, if that's your spiritual condition, you are blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those that have received mercy are by nature merciful people. And, and so this is a cycle there. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, so purity of heart in the Bible is, is the ability to see God. And so for those that have purity in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, the, the reconcilers in the world, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this word blessed, it's actually hard to to understand and translate into modern English. The, the Greek word is makrios, but, but, but to really understand that, uh, one commentator I read this week, he is an Old Testament scholar. He says, if we're going to understand uh, what Jesus meant in Matthew of blessed, we should understand what blessed meant in the Old Testament. And after all, Matthew writing to a Jewish audience would have had this in mind. So, so blessedness in the Old Testament was, was attributed to heroes, People that were to be envied and, and who had received the gifts of God. And so it's a picture of, of, of heroes to be envied. But when Jesus comes along and he talks about blessed, you would expect something radically different. A different picture of a different kind of hero. Until you realize the hope of this passage. The hope of this passage is that the blesseds and that the Beatitudes apply to you and me, not because of anything in us, because, but because they first apply to the one giving the sermon. These are all true of Jesus first so that they can be true of us. Jesus is the hero in this upside down kingdom. Look at it. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had the kingdom of heaven. He had everything and he gave that away. He became poor so that we could become rich in him. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Jesus mourned in the garden and over the people and over his people for us. And so we are comforted. Blessed are the meek. There is no one more meek and humble than Jesus. And he gives us that to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. His life was passionately in pursuit of God and his righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is merciful to us because he received no mercy from Pilate or from the crowds or even from his father on the cross. You and I get to receive the mercy he deserved. Blessed are the pure in heart. Bible tells us that no one has seen God the Father except for the Son because the Son was perfectly pure in heart. But on the cross, that darkness was covering his eyes. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gave that up so that you can have purity of heart, that you can see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is reconciling the world by his blood. He had the world warred against him, violence tearing him apart so that we could be reconciled to him. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus was persecuted for your righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin that you might become the righteousness of God. So, Because Jesus has done this, because God is saying this over us, this is true regardless of how you feel today, if you are trusting in Christ. These blessings are true for you. In fact, fact, the evidence of God's grace that, that these are true for you is if you feel the weight of it, you feel the spiritual bankruptcy of it. So a few weeks ago, we had our first worship and prayer night. And I had all of you fill out anonymous prayer cards. So we wanted to pray for everybody. That was a blessing to pray for so many of you. And a couple things, a couple observations pastorally from that, 
little experiment. We're going to do it again. But, but the first one is, there is a tremendous amount of burden, of weariness, of brokenness, of suffering in this room right now. Again, we're Americans. How are you doing? I'm good. But when you give an anonymous opportunity to ask for prayer, what you see is the vast majority of people in this room are carrying burdens into this room. So, so don't believe the lie that you're the only one that life is kind of off, off the rails for. Now, this is a common experience. That's why we say so often, it's okay to not be okay. Jesus will meet you where you're at. So that's the first observation from those. But the second one was many of the prayer requests, un, probably unknowingly to them, were echoes of this cry for the Beatitudes. People saying, I just, I just want to know God more. I just want to live a life that honors God. I want to glorify God. Just this desperate cry. I'm not there, but this is what I want. And I'm here to tell you, on the authority of the word of God, what Jesus is saying, you are blessed. You're blessed if that was you that wrote that down. If there's any kind of desperation in your heart, no, that's evidence that God is at work. If you felt no inclination, if you felt like, no, I'm good, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. But if you're desperate, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God is at work. And so with his spirit in us, looking to Jesus who fulfilled all this, you now have the power, the opportunity, the motivation to live out the Sermon on the Mount to be the kind of culture and kingdom that God has called us to. That there, there is a, a, a spirit-filled righteousness that Jesus wants to work in us. That there is a humility. Two things that kind of overarch over the whole Sermon on the Mount is that God's people are deeply, deeply humble people. The most humble people on the planet, or they should be. And righteous people. Not having a righteousness of my own, as Paul would say in Philippians 3, but the righteousness that is found in Christ. And so in that we can live. This is God at work in us. But not, not only that, remember, Jesus is not just trying to make you holy, not just trying to do work in your life. Jesus is desiring to make a culture holy, a, a kingdom culture on the earth. So through his church across the planet, Jesus is at work making a kingdom culture rise up. And in 2,000 years of church history, the best examples of the advancement of the kingdom of God is this. When God's people are humble and they are holy and they enter into the world and they transform the world. Jesus wants to transform Parker and his plan is you. Spirit-empowered living out the Sermon on the Mount together. And so how can we do that together? How can we link arms with our different gifts, our different abilities, our different passions, and for the glory of God, live this way? Well, we'll find out over the next few weeks. But to that end, let me pray for us and close our time together. So Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that the Beatitudes describe us perfectly because they first describe you. That we are blessed, Lord. We are blessed to be a part of your kingdom and a part of this kingdom culture. Lord, let us live out of that blessing this week. Let us live out of the reality of who we are in Christ, in the kingdom of the Son you love. 
to the end that Jesus is seen, savored, and glorified in our lives, in our families, and in our city, and in our world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.